again, you may be seated. As you do so, I invite you to join me in taking your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. And this morning we will finish up chapter 6 by looking at verses 15 through 19. So Nehemiah 6, 15 through 19. As we come to the end of chapter 6, we come to the beginning of the end of this project that Nehemiah has taken along with the covenant community in Jerusalem of rebuilding and repairing the wall that is surrounding Jerusalem. So it is an exciting time. It's a joyous time. But as we will read this morning, as we've seen before, even in the midst of this joyful and joyous time, there are still problems to deal with because Satan is still active. Satan is always active. He's always working against God, against God's will, and against his people. Even when times are joyful, things are going well, Satan is still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy it all. That was true for Nehemiah and his people we'll see here. And the same is true for us today as well. Lord willing, we'll see that in our passage this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll come together for God's word. Blessed Lord, you cause all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. This morning we pray that you grant us to hear them, to read them, to mark and to learn, and that we may inwardly digest them, so we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life with which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. We'll stand together now for the reading of God's word. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many, later, le, sorry, sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jeconan had taken a daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berakah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and repeated my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. There is something satisfying about completing a job or a project. And it's even more satisfying when it's a job that's well done. When you go from the beginning of an idea... And then you make a plan, and then you begin to enact that plan. And you get to work. And you take on the project, the job, and you go through everything that comes along with it. The ups and the downs and the highs and the lows. And you get to the end. And it's done. But not only is it done, but it's done well. That's a good and satisfying feeling. And we get to the season of yard work. Many of us are going to end up in our yards during the week, cutting the grass, planting and tending a garden. We're going to be trimming trees and bushes. 
And I know for me, when I'm done with my yard work, I'm cutting the grass or trimming, I like to stand back and look over a job I've done. Enjoy the feeling of something as, as simple mundane as mowing the grass or trimming the bushes. Enjoy that feeling of completing a task and hopefully have done it well. So in the spring or summer, if you drive down to the end of Cornwallis Drive and you see me standing out in the yard with my arms crossed, kind of looking over, surveying my yard, I'm probably just taking it all in, basking in the glory of a job well done. But there is something satisfying about completing a job and it being a job well done. And that's where we find Nehemiah here at the end of chapter 6. It ends with the announcement that this project of rebuilding and refurbishing the wall around Jerusalem is now finished. And it all started with Nehemiah receiving some visitors from, from Jerusalem. And them asking, how are things going in the city? And they said, well, we have bad news. The wall surrounding the city is not doing well still in dis- disrepair and ruins. And this led Nehemiah to prayer, prayerful consideration of wisdom, which then led to him going to Jerusalem, careful observation of all and then wise planning, getting everybody on board and then taking on the work. And now here we are. The work is done. He has dealt with all sorts of problems within the construction. He's dealt with problems from local enemies and even from within the community as well. After all this, it's now all done. So we can imagine Nehemiah saying a little bit outside the city. His robe stained with sweat and dirt. Maybe his hair still plastered on his brow from from all the sweat from the work and he Maybe he's standing there with his, his arms crossed and he's just surveying the wall. He's taking it all in. The job is done and it's been done well. That after all that had taken place, his prayer has now been answered. The wall's repaired. And Jerusalem is now safe from her enemies. Now, Nehemiah and then the rest of God's covenant people can live and work, and worship, and the security of a city that is now well protected by a wall. And to make this moment even more special and satisfying, Nehemiah makes sure to take make sure to tell us the time it took to complete this project. I'm not a mason. I've never built a wall. I've never repaired a wall. I don't know anything about this. So from my unskilled uh, sort of perspective, when I think of a project like this, I would think that in order to go to a city, a good-sized city, and you either have to repair sections of the wall or rebuild other sections of the wall surrounding the city, that would take a good while. Take several months, if not years. But you notice what Nehemiah said. It took 52 days, just shy of two months. Now, to be fair, there's a question of whether it's 52 days total, it's just 52 days of work, or if it's 52 days following the opposition we read about, verses 1 through 14. Either way, the project was still accomplished in an astonishingly short space of time. From that first conversation to the last brick being put back in place and the gates being hung, we're talking no more than half a year for this to to have been done. 
And you add on that the majority of the work was done over the hottest part of summer. The month of Elul matches up to October for us. So that means from at least July through the end of September, we all know how hot it is from July through the end of September, God's people were out there and they were working. Either they were working on the wall or they were standing guard against the enemies who have made numerous threats. After all that, blood, sweat, and tears, the job is now done, and it's been done well. And so the wall now stands, and the story stands as a testimony to the providence and protection of God. I hope you've noticed that from the whole time, from beginning to end, Nehemiah was determined to acknowledge the source of strength. He began by testifying and writing that this project for God began with prayer. Honest, reflective, reliant prayer. He went to God first in prayer. And then he tells us that it was because the gracious hand of God was upon him that he he obtained permission from the king to leave, to go to Jerusalem, and to go with the king's authority, protection, and provisions. He gets to Jerusalem, and he testifies to the builders about the miracle of the gracious hand of God. And he continues to testify not only to the believers, but also to unbelievers, that the God of heaven will give us success. When morale got low, he testified compassionately, don't be afraid, remember the Lord. He testified gratefully, placing on record his indebtedness to God's sovereign power and frustrating the evil designs of the enemy. He testified confidently as the beleaguered team divided into builders and soldiers, our God will fight for us. When troubles began to mount daily, he testified dependently about a God who would strengthen his hands. And now, with the walls rebuilt, he now tells us that even the enemies acknowledge that this work has been done with the help of our God. We see in verse 16, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Nehemiah knew who was behind all this. It was the gracious and sovereign God. And Nehemiah was sure to testify all along the way that this was all due to God, the providential God, the God who protected his people. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to bask in the glory, right, and say, this was my idea. Give give all credit to God. But this this was all this was my idea, and I did you know inspire you people. I did a pretty good job on this. It would be easy for him to gather all the volunteers together and go, give yourself a round of applause. You guys have done a terrific job. Now go try and get yourself out of poverty. He never does that. From beginning to end, he says, This is all due to God. And to God's graciousness and his providence and protection. Nehemiah saw in his life and in this story the testimony of God's goodness. And that stands as a good model of faith for us. Because we believe in the same sovereign and gracious God. The one who is always at work for the good of his people who are called according to his purpose. We know that God is in charge. And we know that he works through providence. We know that his fingerprints are all over our lives. We pray that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. And in part we're praying, your will be done in my life. Our lives are testimony to God answering that prayer for his will to be done. Just like Nehemiah's life was a testimony of the providence and protection of God. That we're here this morning simply because of the mercy of God at work in our lives. It's God who's given you breath. It's God who's given you the ability to come and to worship him. And we worship this morning simply because it was God who first loved us and called us, chose us to now come and to worship and to follow him. So as we look over our lives, we will see time and time again the fingerprints of God. It's all over our lives. And even when we don't readily see his work, we know he was indeed at work. Our lives, my life, your life serves as a testimony to providence of God. So like Nehemiah, it is good for us to give credit where credit is due. You're not successful because you are so smart. You're successful because of the goodness of God. You're not healthy because you take all the right vitamins and precautions. You're healthy because of the goodness of God. Our lives are the testimonies of the providence and protection of God. And over my years here, I've shared enough of my testimony with y'all. Y'all know there's a, a period of time. It wasn't a good period, a dark, uh, rebellious period. And in uh, the fall semester of college, uh, my RUF campus minister, Rich Lambert, wanted to meet with me. And we met at the Durango Bagel in Rock Hill. And I don't know if you ever, ever went there over Ebenezer Avenue. Uh, it was November. It was a cold, raw, windy day. And Rich started talking to me and started talking about Reformed theology. He asked me to share my testimony with him. So I go into it and I give all the sordid details. At the end of it, he looked at me and he said, I have never heard a story of God's protection over one's life like your story. And I'm glad he said that to me. Because up until that point, I just thought I was lucky. Right? I didn't have a black cat. I didn't break a mirror. I didn't walk underneath a ladder. I was smart enough to leave parties before the cops got there. I just thought I was lucky. I'm so thankful for Rich pointing out to me, it wasn't about me. It was how God protected me. That's all of our testimonies, isn't it? All of us can look back over our lives and see the hand of God at work in your life. But when was the last time you thanked God for that? When was the last time you thanked God that he is in charge and he's worked in providence in your life? When was the last time you, you praised God that Romans 8.28 is true for you now, has been true for you, and will be true for you? <laughs> How many of you have prayed that you know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose? That's not just uh, uh, something that gets through a hard time. That's a statement of truth that God's providence and goodness at work in our lives. It's like we just sing in Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace, Jesus Christ, 
has brought me safe thus far, and grace, Jesus Christ, will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. John Newton gets it, doesn't he? In our lives, our testimony is the providence and protection of God. So let's not just sing it and just read it and then put it away like some arcane belief. We're called not just to be hearers of the words, but doers of the word. Since our lives are testimonies of the providence and protection of God, we need to praise him for his work in our lives. So I encourage you, take time today or out in the week for the rest of your life. Take time to think through how God has worked in your life. Reflect on that and praise him for it. Praise him that he loves you so much that he would guide and direct all things for your eternal good. That even the bad things, the horrible things, the difficult things, God promises that good will come out of that. What Joseph said, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Even those horrible things, God can and will bring good out of. Praise him that he so cherishes you that he leaves nothing to chance. There is no such thing as luck. There's only God's sovereignty. And he cherishes you so much he leaves nothing to chance. He doesn't sit back in his heavenly recliner and says, good luck. I hope it all turns out well for you. He's a sovereign and providential God that has so blessed you from your mother's womb up until this very moment. God is good all the time. And all the time God is good. And our lives are testimonies to that. Like Nehemiah, we need to make sure we recognize that and praise God for that truth in our lives. Well, from this praise, Nehemiah is still having to deal with an old enemy, Tobiah. As we saw in previous chapters, Tobiah is a Jewish name. He has family connections through his son's marriage to the daughter of a high-ranking official in Jerusalem. It's possible Tobiah is already a governor. If not, he will soon be. And Nehemiah realizes that many among the among the nobility, many among the nobility at that time, have joined with Tobiah and the enemy, for they are sending letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah is replying back to them. So what's taking place here is gossip. So. Nice way of of Nehemiah saying there's a lot of gossip taking place. Tobiah's gossiping about Nehemiah. And those who Nehemiah think are friends and colleagues are gossiping by him to Tobiah. Now understand who these people are. They're friends of Tobiah. Are they friends of Nehemiah? They live there. They may even go to church with Nehemiah. And they're gossiping about this faithful man to Tobiah and the other enemies. So think about what Nehemiah is having to contend with. The most innocent conversation. Imagine after church, you're in the vestibule, or you're outside talking. And after a while you realize that you're talking about the weather, or you're talking about things going on in your life. That person is taking that conversation and running off to your enemy and gossiping about you, taking all your words and everything and twisting it up and using it against you. That you can't really trust anybody. 
you go to church with, who you work with, who you have dinner with, because they're going to run back to one of your greatest enemies and lie and gossip about you. And then on top of that, same people come back to Nehemiah and they want to tell Nehemiah how good Tobiah is. Come on, Nehemiah, give him a chance. I know you thought he wanted to kill you before. We all have bad days. Right? I think he's gotten over it. Bad feelings for society. Come on, you can tr- he's a good dude. You should join up with him. You should go vacation with him. So even with all the good things going on, Satan's at work. The project's done, but he's still trying to get Nehemiah now through the means of Tobiah and the nobility of Judah through gossip. And when Nehemiah says that many in Judah were under oath to Tobiah, he's also referring to the fact that they had trade alliances that he made with them. So Tobiah is like the godfather of these people. He's made a nobility an offer they can't refuse. He's keeping them under his thumb through money because he knows their love and weakness for money, so he's got them. He's got them with gossip and he's got them with money. And this can lead to serious morality issues. As one commentary says, people with a single eye to monetary gain rarely look anywhere else for help. They seldom reflect on yesterday's blessings or today's temptations or tomorrow's insecurity. Money buys little that matters. We leave all of our possessions this side of eternity. Then what will matter most is not how wealthy we have been on earth, but how rich we are in heaven. Jesus issued a warning relevant to every culture and continent and century. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But that's where these people are. They've cast their lots with Tobiah and with money. And now they're readily gossiping about Nehemiah. And Satan is using all this to create a lot of damage. He still does the same to this day. Gossip is a currency, isn't it? It's a rich currency in a small town, in a small church, in a small community. And some of us have joked, you know, uh, I'm not saying it's out of gossip, I'm saying it's because I care about them. But did you hear this? I'm not trying to gossip. Let me give you a prayer request. Did you see her haircuts? Oh, mercy. And it creates damage, doesn't it? How do we feel when we find out we've been gossiped about? How do we feel when we find out we've been gossiped about by somebody in our church? Thought we knew them. Loved them. Satan can create a lot of damage through gossip and through love of money. But there's something else we want to make sure we notice how Satan was working through Tobiah, and that was through families. Tobiah married his way into nobility. He married into a respected family. And he went after these noble families through the means of money and gossip. And it's a reminder to us that Satan targets families, especially Christian families. As we've heard before, as the family goes, so goes the church. And that's an interesting correlation. 
And you start going back and looking at the studies that as divorce became more prevalent in our society, attendance in church began to go down. As liberalism and many facets started to gain traction and it hurt the family, it began to hurt the church as well. A lot of times we think of Satan's attack on the church as a, as a frontal attack. Let's get to the preacher. Let's get to the doctrine. Let's get to the preaching. And he does work that way. But he works in the pews as well because he goes after families. Because the saying is true, as the family goes, so goes the church. We're Reformed Presbyterians. And we have a lot of kind of names and, and categories that we have in our, in our doctrine and we call ourselves, we believe what we call covenant theology. And in covenant theology, we, we understand and we believe that God works mightily through families. What's the first institution God created? Was the institution of family. And we think about how God has worked in families from Adam and Eve to Noah to Joseph to Moses to David to Solomon. The story of Jesus is the story of a family, isn't it? The story of Jesus, so Jesus' miracles deals with families. And then you come to the book of Revelation and, and the way the church is described in parts of the book of Revelation is described as a family. Jesus Christ, or the church itself is described as a family of God. God works through families. That's in part why we have infant baptism. It's a family theology. But as much as God works through families is as much as Satan targets the family. Because he understands the family is important to God and for his plan for the church. As the family goes, so goes the church. Studies show that if a father and a family comes to church, there's a 93% chance that everyone in the family will come to know Christ and be regular at church. That's an astounding figure. A 93% success rate if the father would believe in Christ and follow Christ. The rest of the family will fall in step. Why? Because as the family goes, so goes the church. You cannot say the family is not important if there's a 93% success rate to it. Now, we also understand there are times and situations where the father is absent or he's not dependent or he's not a Christian. And this is where a godly and faithful mother can step in and do so much good. As we have talked about before, there are so many testimonies that revolve around a godly and faithful mother who leads her children to Christ and faithfulness to the church. We think of Timothy in the Bible. We think of Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, and the list goes on and on and on. So even if we don't have the most ideal family situation, God can and will redeem it through faith and obedience. And just as Nehemiah stood back and surveyed this job being completed and a job well done, 
we should all want that same experience with our families. We We may not be called to rebuild a wall or repair a wall, but we have been called, each and every one of us, to minister to our families. If you have a family, then you have a responsibility to that family to lead them to Christ. Either you be a mother or a father. If you're a child, aunt, uncle, whatever it be, you have the responsibility of obedience to Christ. Because that obedience blesses the family. We have to fight against the worldly standards of materialism, hedonism, and secularism for ourselves and for our families. Where the world wants you to think your, your goal as a parent, a grandparent, leader in the family, your singular goal is to make enough money for your family to live well. Maybe not Bill Gates kind of money. But enough money where your children can dress fashionably. You can go to the right places on vacation. They can have the right car, so on and so forth. The world tells us the standards of materialism Materialism, hedonism, secularism. And we have to fight against it. Because we talked about this morning in Sunday school, 2 Corinthians 5.10 is still true to this day. That one day, each of us will have to stand before God and we will have to answer for what we do with the blessing of the family he has given to us. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We will have to stand before him and answer for the blessing of the family he has given to us. Which means one day we're going to stand in front of God and he's going to say to us, he's going to ask us, I love you and I care for you. And in that love and care, I bless you with a beautiful family. What did you do with that blessing? And we want to be able to say, Lord, by the best of the abilities you gave me, I raised my family in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And I sought to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, and all my might. And I diligently taught this to my family. We talked of you when we sat in our house. We talked of you when we walked by the way. We talked of you when we laid down at night. We talked of you when we rose again in the morning. My goal, Lord, was always for me and my house to serve the Lord. What a, what a wonderful goal for us to have for our families. And what a wonderful answer that we will give God when, not if, but when we have to answer to him about the blessing he's bestowed on each of us with our families. Because at the center of all this is the sufficiency of the Lord. This is what Nehemiah has seen and known from day one. No matter the challenge, nothing was going to deter him from following after God and his will because he knew God was faithful and God was sufficient and God was good. So no work of Satan, no threat from the enemies around him, no disorder from within the community could dissuade him from following after God because he knew God to be good and faithful and sufficient in all. And this is what drove Nehemiah's life forward. Now, here's one of the amazing things for us as Christians. We have that same assurance, but even more so in Jesus Christ. How how can we be assured that God is good and faithful and sufficient? Because all we need to do is look to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
There is the goodness of God on display. There is the faithfulness of God on display. There is the sufficiency of God on display. When Jesus says it is finished, that is the statement of complete sufficiency. That everything that needs to be done for your life, for your salvation, for your eternity has now been accomplished. We have the absolute 100% assurance that God is good and faithful and faithful to call us to be, and for him to be sufficient in all of our lives. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He has washed me white as snow. He has done it all. And all we are called to do is have faith in who Jesus is and what he's done. To, to read his word. To trust it. And to follow him as the all-sufficient shepherd. And when we do that, we will find that Jesus is always at work. And his fingerprints over our lives will be that much more evident as he is sufficient for all things. I came across, came across this quote by Spurgeon this week. If you belong to Jesus, let me advise you to do four things. Obey him. Let his word be your law. Let his wish be your will. Love him. Let your heart embrace him. Let your whole soul be filled with him. Trust him. Rest on nothing or no one but on him. Be decided for him. Thus, even when, without being marked with a sign, everyone will know to whom you belong. Nehemiah stands as the example of what we all want to hear Christ say to us. Well done, my good and faithful servants. A job well done is for us to proclaim the glories and grace of God's providence and protection of our lives and to live by his sufficiency so that when Satan comes after us and when he comes after our families and our church, we can stand ready because we stand with Christ who in his all-sufficiency has already defeated that foe. He is our mighty fortress. He is the wall who surrounds us. If we would be his and live in him as such. Pray with me.